Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the people, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is in, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he, all, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measures of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity for us to gather today and hear your word. I pray that you be with Pastor Steve and allow him to deliver the message so that we clearly understand and are open to his message to us today. Thank you for your word. In your name I pray, amen. Well, good morning. I invite you to open your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 4. It's good to see each of you today. When did you learn how to walk? Do you remember? Probably not. You probably have to trust in your mom or your dad's story of how and when you learned to walk. Um, can you even remember what your earliest memory is? Right? If you, if you can, I can still remember being brought home from the hospital and peeking out of my blanket and waving at people. Okay? That's fiction, by the way. Um, nonfiction is I don't really have really any memories. Uh, before three years old. They, it's uh, something that is called childhood amnesia, uh, where at about the age of seven, you begin to lose all of your earliest memories. You have them, but by seven, they sort of disappear. Uh, not everyone. Some people may have a memory. I always challenge them, are you sure you're not remembering a photograph or a story? You're, you're remembering a memory rather than the actual event. But regardless, when did you learn to walk? Do you remember when your children learned to walk? Okay, we celebrate it, right? We take videos of it, we post about it, we cheer them on. We say, come here, look at this, look at this, and we let them go, and it's this, right, couple steps, and they're about to fall over, and then they make it across the room. It's a big deal. Do you know that the church walks? The church has a walk. 
in our walk, our individual walks, say something about us. Our gait, our posture, our direction, our velocity. When will you not be able to walk anymore? Do you have anybody in your family that cannot walk anymore? It's interesting what Jesus tells Peter at the end of John chapter 21. Of course, uh, Jesus is here re- restoring Peter after his threefold denial. So to restore him, Jesus is asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? And the response is, so it's not just an affirmation of love, but there's an action to it. If you love me, feed my sheep. He does this three times. Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, this is the third time, feed my sheep. But then listen to what Jesus tells Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God with. And after saying this to him, he looked at Peter and said, follow me. There's a very distinct walk. And in this case, Peter's walk was going to stop because of the kind of death he was going to die. No other passage in Scripture is more descriptive of the church in action than Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Now, you, can, you, can, you realize sort of the colossal text that we've chosen this morning just by hearing it read, not even preached or explained, but just read. Uh, it is a large text. But what we're going to see, and it really marks the transition, you can tell that by the word, uh, therefore, okay, you have chapters 1 through 3, which is heavy on doctrine, um, and, and there's an important lesson here because all doctrine should flow into action. Okay, because these things are true, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I'm going to urge you to do something. And then he kind of unfolds three chapters of action or the responsibility and effects of grace. But Paul's practical ethical instruction is centered largely on this metaphor to walk. I want you to see this. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. He says this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Look at verse 17, chapter 4. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking about lifestyle. Okay, not just sort of a succession of steps, though that explains lifestyle in many ways, where we go, where we choose to follow, who we choose to follow. Uh, But no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in, what does it say? Walk in love. Look at verse 8, chapter 5. Walk as children of light. Look at verse 15 of chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. This is what walking indicates. It indicates something learned, something controlled, and something directed. Which means that a church can choose not to walk in a worthy manner of its calling. And there are many churches that do this. Paul has been teaching from Ephesians 1 to 3 that God's eternal plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You'll see that in chapter 1, verse 10. 
This unity, and we, we sort of forget this word, but this unity is to display a trophy of God's grace, His wisdom. And He's reconciling peoples that were once divided, once hostile. He's bringing them all together so that, Ephesians 3 verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. When we live in unity, which is part of a worthy walk, living according to our calling, when we do that, there's something that the world sees, but there's also something in the spiritual realm where they are observing God's amazing plan. So down what line should we expect attack? Since it's the church that's on display and it displays God's grace, it displays his incredible wisdom even to unseen spiritual realities, where do we expect the attack to come? In this passage, emphasis is placed, sort of how Paul is writing, in the emphasis of the construction of the passage. Listen to the words that, that, that are given preeminence. The idea of one, you saw that in the text, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, one Spirit. Okay, the idea of one, he also emphasizes the idea of body. He also emphasizes measure and build up. And he also emphasizes the word love. So down, down those lines, one, unity, body, health, measure, build up, growth, and love, Christ-likeness, will come the attack. So there... So that's why Paul is saying, I'm going to urge you, and we're going to look at it really simple. We're going to, we're going to divide the, the whole text, verses 1 through 16, in two parts. I'm going to urge you to have this attitude, which is essential for unity, and I'm going to urge you to have this action, which is essential for unity. Attitude and action. So let's look at this. Look at verse 1. Paul reminds his readers that he's in prison, and this adds gravity to what he's about to say. Because Paul was walking worthily, he ended up in a Roman imprisonment. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you're not sure what that calling is, go back and read Ephesians 1 through 3. Here's the attitude, and, and this is sort of how we'll describe it. The attitude, living together in unity. Paul is concerned that there is a genuine and deep unity within the churches that gather in Christ's name. He's not so much interested in a unity as we might understand it in sort of our post-denominationalism, denominational alignment, or parachurch ministry alignment, or missions philosophy alignment. Those are not unimportant. Some are more important than others. But what he's talking about is a unity. If we were just going to give an example, a unity right here. And a unity among other churches who are gathering in Christ's name. It is a relational unity in the gospel within churches. Here are the attitudes crucial for your unity. Look at verses 1 through 3. With all humility. That's the first attitude. Do you know that humility is a necessary component for Christian living? That there can be no unity, no true, genuine, authentic unity without humility? This isn't shyness or isolationism. It is thinking of yourself properly. That's what humility refers to. 
It is restraining our sense of entitlement to always get our way in a situation. It is promoting others' best interests that are in line with the gospel. Or as C.S. Lewis' description in his, in his excellent book, Mere Christianity, he says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We have a culture that wants us to be fixated upon ourselves, to be fixated upon our attention, to be fixated upon what we get and make sure we get it in our way and immediately. And you know, if we all had that attitude, even just in this small gathering, there would be no unity. Because we're not going to be as all out about you as you are in that moment. Right? And then feelings get hurt. And priorities are distorted. Humility is necessary for unity. Do you know opinionated believers need this admonition? Dogmatic Doctrinal fighters need this admonition. Self-promoting, attention-seeking Christians need to nurture this attitude. So with all humility. Is that how we're interacting with each other? Look at the next word, gentleness. This is a lost word, a lost attitude among God's people. Uh, The word meekness. It can also be used here for gentleness. It's strength under control. It is not synonymous with weakness. This is not a call for men and women to be weak or silly, but gentle. There can be an incredible, attractive gentleness even among the most strong people. This is refusing to deal roughly with people or gruffly with people. Demanding and forceful believers need this admonition. Look at the next word, patience, verse 2. This is suffering long with the faults of others. And this makes sense because if we're, if we're called to live life together and if we're called to serve together and we're called to extend the gospel to this community and ultimately to the whole world, then if we're spending time together doing that, what's the problem? We get to know each other. In differing situations, in different settings, not just here when we're all looking one direction and singing and looking pretty. But when you don't get things your way over here, if you're packing a box to send to a missionary or in a home, I still remember it is it is as clear as day. uh, What was otherwise a very gentle, distinguished pastor, not here in Colorado, anywhere. uh, We were at a cookout and somebody took his steak. It was on the grill and they poked it, which let the juices run out. And he got so upset, almost embarrassingly so, and rebuked the person that would actually poke his steak. And I thought, in any, in any other situation, like if that was just, you know, a 17-year-old that's become a steak, you know, expert, we'd, we'd, you know, it's still, okay. it's really not appropriate, but, but, a, but a pastor... Or a godly Christian man who gets that upset about his steak being cooked wrong. This is suffering long with the faults of others. It's enduring annoyances and irritations. Listen to this. Over a long period of time. It is slow in seeking to sharply rebuke others because quick rebuke is often a sign of selfish irritation. Even when done under the banner of Christian it can be a sign of 
selfish irritation. Aggressive and ambitious believers need this admonition. So there's sort of like a triad. Humility, gentleness, patience. And if you read the Gospels, or you just read a Gospel, you will see how attractively humble Jesus is. How gentle. How patient. How humble. And these three attitudes are not just static. It's not like we teach them and, we, and, and we, then we do a, a self-evaluation. We, we should do that. But these attitudes of humility, gentleness, and patience are actually to be worked out in this setting when the church gathers. What does that look like? Well, look at the second part of verse 2. This is what it looks like. You will bear with one another in love. You know what the idea is? It misses the force. The translation is this. You will put up with people in love because Christ has put up with you. Does anybody ever have to put up with you? And you'll have to put up with who? Sean? And me? Right? At times. We do, some of the, we do most of the talking around here. There's going to be times you're going to have to lovingly put up with us. Right? Does anybody else have a dorky sense of humor in here? Okay, hang out with me. You'll see one. You might have to put up lovingly with that. Um, we put up with people differently than the world does, don't we? And we should. You know what will make you stand out as Christian in a setting? Is that you lovingly put up with very annoying people. And they can sense that. Others will see that. This means we as Highlands Baptist Church will accept the differences, failures, and flaws of others because we will choose to love them as Christ has loved us. This is the exact application Paul will make later in chapter 4 when he says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, they exist in churches. They existed in the, the church at Ephesus. He says, let them be put away from you along with all malice. Being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. By the way, that means there's sin. As God in Christ forgave you. Humility and gentleness and patience are necessary to put up with each other in love. But also, look at the next application. Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's important here to realize that this is something that the Spirit gives to His church. There is a unity and a bond that is given. And it's based on the oneness of God and the oneness of the Gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul's going Paul's to show you on which unity is based here in a few seconds. But right now, we are eager to maintain this. Maintain indicates this is something that can be lost or compromised or fractured. What is it that we're protecting in humility and gentleness and patience? Uh, someone described it this way, the sweet togetherness that we enjoy here. Or that family-like joy that the Holy Spirit gives to us as we are living with one another in patience and humility and gentleness. Yesterday, I had a meeting and I ran into two of our brothers here and they were at a table in a coffee shop, studying the Scriptures together. And as soon as I walked in, among everybody else, and all the tables were full, I had an immediate bond with these two men. 
I walked up to them, shook their hands, and gave a hug. That's what the Spirit gifts to His church. And we need to be eager to maintain that because it'll be down those lines that the attack comes. What will this require of us? I mean, just this first part of Ephesians 3 4. What will that require of us? Will disagreements arise within this church family? Yes. Like any other good family, disagreements will arise. Rather than stir the tension up with strong opinions or destructive dogmatic assertions or gossip, why not be one who reflects Jesus Christ to his church? A person marked by humility, by gentleness, by patience, by tolerant love, by peacekeeping. And then this is going to beg a question in this first part. Are these the attitudes that we're supposed to have? And that is, on what is unity to be found? Do you know that tension can be created here if we try to unify around the wrong thing? If your unity is only found in, in, in an income bracket or in a political persuasion or in some kind of philosophy outside of what is listed here, that is not biblical unity. Matter of fact, Paul is going to write a young pastor and he's going to say to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Why? You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He's actually capturing some of these same attitudes that he's putting forward to the church at Ephesus. Do you know that unity is found in theological oneness? Not origin of birth. Not a thousand other things that people want to find unity in. As a matter of fact, Paul lists seven things and he uses that term one. That means this is where our unity is to be found. Look at this. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A list of seven things provided to this church by which we are to have unity in in which we are to have unity in. In verse 4, you have sort of these ideas together. We would say it this way. There is one Holy Spirit who has called us into the one body, the church, through the one hope of eternal life found only in Jesus Christ. And around that, we can unify. Look at verse 5. There is one Lord who Himself said, He is the way, the truth, the life, no one goes to the Father except through Him. One Lord who is to be received by one faith. There's not a stronger faith. There's not a weaker faith. There's not different teachings. It is one faith that identifies with us with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection, which we call union with Christ, which verse 5 calls the one baptism. He's not talking about the timing of a ceremony or the mode what he's talking about is there is one union in Jesus Christ in his being baptized with him. Romans chapter 6. You, you died with him. You were buried with him. And you rose again with him. That's the gospel. There's one baptism. Look at verse 6. 
One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God the Father is the origin, sovereign, and sustainer of everything and everyone. It's interesting that Paul describes the unity of the church by putting forward the triunity of the Godhead. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father. And there's a lesson there. And I believe Paul is intending to to show that within the Godhead there is a, a complete equality, though a diversity of persons. And in the church there should be a complete unity and equality with a distinction of giftedness in the persons. Imagine if our music team started to purposely compete against each other. Just think about that for a second. If it, if it ever sounds like we are, it's not, it's not on purpose. But can you imagine if all of a sudden the guitars think they should strum faster and louder just to be a little bit in front of all the other instruments? And it becomes noticeable to us down here who they're trying to lead. Well, the cone player chooses a timing that does not fit the song. She starts playing to a 6-8 timing instead of a 4-4 timing. Why? Just to stand out. Just to be different. The bass starts to solo during a time when the team has already agreed it should be simple and the volume should be lower. Right? How's our, how are we now worshiping? I probably stopped singing at that point. And, and, if, and I, I try not to be too conspicuous, but my head will tilt a little bit. And my eyes will go down, and you can't see that. That's the advantage of sitting on the front row. But they've ne- I've never had to do that because they're not competing with each other. The piano player, it doesn't feel like she has to outdo the other instruments. They're playing as much as possible in unison, just like a good orchestra or a good ensemble. Because if they don't, if they don't play that way, it compromises the unity we have out here, where we are trying to sing with one voice to God. Do you know sometimes... Churches do exactly what that illustration does. They promote one individual or they cater to this wealthy individual or they really talk up this person who has an unusual giftedness. And you know what that starts to do? That starts to seep down and have an effect upon a church and it starts to fracture and compromise the unity that the Holy Spirit has given What can we do to promote unity at Highlands? If we just bring this first section to a close. Or more specifically, if we're going to take the applications of the text. Who here do you find it difficult to be patient towards? Who here do you avoid? Who here creates friction in your heart? I'm going to suggest that Ephesians 4, as Paul is urging this church, I would urge you to reconcile, to find peace, to do so in humility and gentleness and in patience, so that this unity is not compromised. Because there could be two individuals here, and I'm not thinking of any two in in particular, who agree doctrinally, same page, same corner, the same page, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, one Spirit, but they're not talking. So there's a breakdown, not on the doctrinal part, but on the relational part. That's why these attitudes are essential for unity. 
Paul is not thinking about just doctrinal unity, though he puts that forward. He's talking about relational unity. Living out our calling, how the church is to live, serve, and grow together. Let's look at the second section quickly. Verses 7 through 16. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one. Okay, grace, not in the sense of salvation, which he talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, but grace in the sense of a gift for ministry or a gift for service, which means everybody here has been given a gift. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians. Which means if you're just attending and observing, you're not using your grace that the Holy Spirit has given you to assist in this unity. Let's keep reading. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. As Richard Koken says in his little commentary, every believer has been given a gift to serve the church. And by the way, let's not think of a building primarily. The church is people. Okay, we are still the church when we scatter from here. This is just an empty building. There's nothing super spiritual about this room or about these bricks or about the classrooms downstairs. It is a building we gather in. You're the church. So when when we talk about gifts to serve the church, it is living, breathing people. He says every believer has been given a gift to serve the church, as Paul explains more fully elsewhere. This means that none of us should indulge any feelings of inadequacy, for we all have something to contribute. Indeed, the church will be weakened If we don't offer our ministry and none of us should indulge feelings of superiority because none of us have all the gifts. Indeed, we will eventually discover that we all need the ministries of other people in our church. I just think it's an excellent way of explaining that everyone here is a needed part because of the grace that the spirit has given to you. He actually quotes then Psalm 68, verse 18. Look at verse eight. Therefore, it says, he's referring to Psalms. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this would have reminded the early readers of the Exodus when God delivered his people out from Egypt and he took them out. That's what Exodus means, a going out. Verse 9 is going to give a parenthetical explanation. So don't get lost in the text or in the organization of the text. But look at what he says in verse 9. After he says he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You remember, and this is what would have been called to mind, that when the the soon-to-be Israelite nation was delivered, do you remember that supernaturally they plundered the Egyptians and they were given gifts? These are slaves. Slaves that that are being delivered. And here the Egyptians are showering gifts upon them. As they march out into the wilderness. So look at verse 9. Look at what he says about sort of that historical situation. In saying now he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? And this is where this time of year becomes special because we celebrate Christ taking on human flesh. He descended from the glories of heaven. He became poor. He became a man. He took on human flesh so that we, by his grace, by his atoning death, might become rich. What does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. We see that in Acts chapter one, that he might fill all things. 
So really, the, the, the beauty here is that because Jesus ascended, He showered the church by the Holy Spirit with gifts upon individuals so that we can be serving until He returns. Now look at, look at the last section. This is verse 11 to 16. I'm not going to reread it, but I want you to look at it. Beginning in verse 11, all the way down to verse 16 is one sentence. And it consists of 150 words in the New English Standard Version. One sentence, 150 words. In this one sentence, it's going to start to sound like an English class, there is one subject and one verb. Because it's a single sentence. Can you, can, you, can you identify the subject? Because it's talking about, it seems like a lot of important offices, right? There's apostles and there's evangelists and there's pastors, teachers, and there's prophets. Do you know they're not the subject of this sentence? He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the subject. And we know that because of the context, because He is the one who descended and ascended. Jesus Christ is the subject. This means that any vision for this church or any other church that misses Jesus Christ as the primary subject is already off mission. Ephesians is all about, if you can remember this, hopefully we're getting this theme down, what God the Father is doing in the church through Christ for His own glory forever. And so why are we given gifts? Not for our own renown or our own success. We're given gifts to exalt the subject of this sentence, Jesus Christ. That means a single man, an elder, a deacon, an evangelist, a missionary, a wealthy man or woman, a powerful man or woman, an influential and talented man or woman, or a very personable and likable man or woman is not the center of the church. Jesus Christ is. Here's the verb. And He, Jesus, we have the subject established. Here's the verb. He gave. Which really explains a lot about how Jesus lived on the earth, isn't it? Full of grace and truth. Here He is ascending as the affirmed, accepted King of kings and Lord of lords. And He is still giving to His people. He, Jesus, verse 11, gave. What did He give? Well, He gave gifts. What kind of gifts? Keep reading. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And here's what I want us to note and not forget. It is not the men themselves that are, that are what's important. It is what they do that is most important. And this is going to help us understand what we as a church are then called to do. Because what these men do is very much like what Jesus Christ did when He walked the earth. His primary ministry, though it involved miracles, his primary ministry was teaching and proclaiming truth. Matter of fact, he would tell the disciples, we need to go to other cities also so that I can what? So that I can teach there also. And those men, if they are also like Christ, who chose 12 men and equipped them for ministry, look at verse 12. These men are given to equip. It's the idea of an ambulance or a fighter jet. It has everything it needs for its mission. We have been equipped to equip others. So if, 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 if you get lost in that wording, just remember this. Our, 
Our primary part here at this church is to not be receivers or merely attenders, but responders and contributors. That's what service looks like. We live with this attitude so that we serve like this. We live with the attitude of Jesus Christ so that we then serve like Jesus Christ. Too often, ministry, it is said, is done by 10% while 90% watch. Right? It's, the, it's the funny illustration um, that, that churches can be like a European soccer match. 22,000 spectators desperately, desperately in need of some exercise and 22 players desperately in need of rest. Right? And the church can become like that. Do you know Jesus never led his followers down the path of being takers or spectators or observers? He actually said this in Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are here to bless one another, and we cannot bless each other or this community or the world by simply being consumers. We bless one another by being here, which takes commitment, by being here and by using the grace that the Holy Spirit has given to us. Why? Why why has God given these gifts? Look at verse 12. For building up. That's it, for building up. That means if a single word that comes out of your mouth tears another person down here, you're working against God's purpose for His church. Now, but I'm just telling the truth. Maybe so. But are you doing so with humility? Are you doing so with gentleness? Are you doing so in patience? Are you putting up with one another in love? Are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit because there is a bond that the Spirit gives to us? Well, I just, I'm just going to say it anyway. Okay, well, then you're living out of line of God's Word. Because we're here to build up, and there's also sort of this doctrinal depth. Look at verse 14, right? By the way, verse 12, building up. The building of lives and people is what ministry is all about. It's what we are called to do. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine. It's, it's this kind of this picture, silly picture, uh, of, of a man in a rowboat trying to cross the Atlantic. Here comes a wave. There he goes. Here comes the wind. There he goes again. Okay, what does that look like sort of in real-time ministry scenario? Tossed and carried and being driven by the most recent or trending religious fad. Scripture gives depth and we equip to equip others who can then equip other people. Now note these words. We're going to go through these quickly. Look at verse 12. Because this is what ministry looks like and this is what ministry is about and this is why you have been given a grace to serve the church. Verse 12. You have been, been given a grace to build up. Do you see that phrase? Now look at verse 13. Unity. Now look at verse 13. Maturity. Now look at verse 13 again. Measure. Now look at verse 13 again. Stature. And in the same verse, fullness. Look at verse 15. To grow up in every way. Look at verse 16. Joined. Look at verse 16 again. Held together. Verse 16, equipped. Verse 16, grow. Verse 16, builds itself up. What do all those words have in common? They're all words of progress, of increase, and of growth. Do you remember the first term that Paul is urging us to what? 
He's urging us to walk. Nobody came home from the hospital. You did not walk home from the hospital as a newborn. No newborn has ever walked home from the hospital on its own. Why? Because walking is a deliberate action. You blinked on the way home because that's involuntary. You started blinking right away, hopefully. You did not start walking. Blinking is a different body mechanism than walking. Walking is deliberate. Do you know what we're supposed to be doing here? As we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, with these attitudes, we are supposed to be helping one another grow. Helping those who are still in the high chair, trying to kind of monkey grip Cheerios and put them in their mouth. We're trying to help that person grow so they can get out of the high chair. The one who keeps tripping and falling, we help them up. We're not over here in a little click, doesn't even know how to walk yet. We don't do that. The church does not do that. Well, I can't believe they don't even understand that doctrine yet. <laughs> no. You go over and you help them go to the next phase of walking. Sometimes you pull them up by the arm. There will be people here that fail. They won't want to show their face again. And we as a church reach out because we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. We help them get back into where they can grow and keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. All words of progress, increase, and growth. That's what a healthy church looks like. It looks like a healthy body. And it's not possible without humility, gentleness, and patience. So here's the point. We're not just going somewhere and doing stuff. We're becoming something together to reflect Christ's image to the community, to the world, and to the spiritual realms. Our country is not unified. This world is not unified. The Democratic Party is not unified. The Republican Party is not unified. There is a North Korean country and a South Korean country. There's division. When I traveled to Sudan, it was one country back in 2003. Now there is a Sudan and there's a southern Sudan country. Why? Division and strife and war and hate and crime and greed. There are civil wars raging as we speak. We still can't even forget our own civil war. There's division and turmoil. Paul is actually going to say this. this. This is not a surprise because these are the works of the flesh. These are our natural inclination. He says in Galatians 5, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's division and strife and slander. But there shouldn't be in the church. That's what makes us a unique people. That's what makes us salt and light to the world. And in Ephesians 4, Paul is teaching against our natural inclination to be proud by saying, you need to be humble. By being gruff with others. And he says, be gentle. By being impatient. And he says, be patient. And he's also going against our natural inclination to simply protect our own interests and serve ourselves. By saying, God's Spirit is giving you a grace. Now serve one another. Build one another up. Do this for the glory of Jesus Christ. But when there's strife and jealousy and anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions within the church, that leads me to believe there's only two answers to that. And thankfully, maybe I should say this on the front end, um, I believe God is doing an incredible work here among this particular church 
by gifting us with unity and love and the attitudes and the actions that we've seen. We're growing into that more and more. But if rivalry and slander and gossip and hate and greed and envy seep into a church, there's only two answers. First, unregenerate church membership and attendance. That those gathering are not truly born again. There's really no other, there's no other explanation for somebody who is consistently and habitually so much like the world, even though they put on a religious front. So, professing something and attending something that is not true of them personally. Secondly, it would, if it's not unregenerate church membership, it would be then disobedient church membership and attendance. Meaning that is people living out of line with the gospel and its ramifications and not caring that they're living out of line with it. As one man said, our problem is that we have a million dollar salvation and a five cent response to it. When what Paul is calling us to in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is something totally other than what most of us have experienced even within the church. And it can start by each of us just this morning saying, I want to be that kind of member. I want to have those attitudes and God forgive me where I failed. And I want to be active, not lying dormant because God has given me something. I don't want to just hoard it, but I want to use it to build others up because that's what pleases God. Let's pray.